salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Alright, so he talks about the things we have to get rid of. Now, obviously we can't grow plants in a garden if it's all grown up in weeds. You know, a lot of times there are things you have to get rid of before you can have real growth and and productivity. But here, notice the things we have to put aside. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. What do you notice is kind of a common thread between those things? Besides the all? Besides the all. There are three alls, yes. Yes, here are attitudes that destroy our love for each other and our closeness to each other. And so we're going to have to get rid of these things to be able to thrive and have the mutual love we ought to have. And you can only grow when you make a break from these things that hinder spiritual growth. So you think about these, you know, put aside all malice, you know, every desire to wound or hurt somebody. He says the all, so you don't think that your malice is an exception. Get rid of all of it. You know, and all deceit. Which deceit is misleading. It's really not loving because it, it, it makes someone believe something that's wrong, that's a lie. You can't trust somebody that's deceitful. Hypocrisy, same deal. Envy, you don't like somebody ha- be doing well and having good things. That certainly is against love. And all slander, you know, which is speaking against others. So, you know, we get rid of those things, both to love each other, verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1, and to really grow in the word in verse 2. Because he's been talking about this enduring word of God, the living and enduring word of God. And now he says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. Um, And have you ever seen a newborn? Yeah, and how do they uh, behave when they get hungry for milk? (laughs) They will let you know about it. It's amazing that a voice box uh, that uh, loud comes in a package that small. (laughs) Right? It's like, wow, and you let him go an hour, you know, past feeding, and, ooh, you're not going to be able to stand it. Uh, Why? Because they want food. I mean, I I suppose at that point they're not, you know, consciously thinking, I need food, but that hunger pang causes them to cry out because they want to be fed. We're a little like that, right? We may not, you know, cry quite like that. But but what is the only thing on our mind when we're starving? I want to eat, you know, and we'll we'll go do some pretty radical stuff. I mean, we may be in a pretty important thing, but when we get really hungry, it's like everything else gets shelved. I got to eat, and uh, but but you see that physically. He's, he's using an illustration like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that you, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's what we need to do. You know, can you imagine a baby that got fed like three times a week? What would happen to the poor kid? You croak. What about us when we feed on the word three times a week? Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and that's it. How does that uh, 
How does that affect our spiritual uh, vitality? It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, he wants us to have that same, you know, intense desire for the word as what feeds us, as what a baby does. That's what he's really exhorting us to do. Um, You know, we want that milk. We want the word. We crave it. And we're not satisfied by just picking our Bible up when we go to church. We want to really have that word. And he says, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. The idea is um, the taste has whetted your appetite. You know, you've, you've developed a taste for the Lord and he's so good, you just can't wait to get more. You haven't you had food like that? You know, you know. Think about what they do at like, um, well, sometimes a grocery store, or even like a specialty food shop of some sort. Okay. They'll give you little samples. The food court. The food court. <laughs> yeah. They'll give you little samples. Why are they giving you the samples? You can buy more. Exactly. They're trying to whet your appetite and get you to where, hey, I gotta have some more of that. You know, I actually have a story about that. Me and him were at the mall a couple of days ago, what? and they had the little um, samples. The yes, be quiet, please. And they had little samples from Chick Fil A for um, for the peppermint milkshakes that they have right now. Oh yeah, and I was I like freaking out, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to have it, and I didn't even have any <laughs> money. So I was, like, drinking that little sample thing. And I was like, I can't even get more of this. Why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> go ahead, go back uh, in a different uh, dress or something. Get another one. <laughs> exactly. Well, we, we had just gotten Starbucks. So it was like, yeah. it was like why, why didn't I just go and get this big, large peppermint milkshake from Chick-fil-A? I don't watch Trappé. Well, he he legit the- sat there and he looks at me. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He goes, I'll take a large wrap. And I was like, it was my idea. <laughs> well, I, Sandra just had a free one yesterday. She gave me and the strawberry away. But, it was <laughs> <laughs> but I did drink. Um, so, I mean, we need to have this appetite for the Lord. So deep and so intense that we just constantly long for the milk of the word. We want the word. We want it in our mind and our heart. We're just thinking about it, talking about it, reading it, meditating on it, studying it, because it just it just means that much to us. We've got that big an appetite for it. All right, thoughts and comments on that? So what would they think reading this when he says the milk of the word? Like, obviously, we think the whole Bible, New Testament, everything that we have, but they didn't have that all compiled at that point, so... Well, A, they had the Old Testament. Right. B, they had First Peter. And C, they had the revelation being given by prophets and apostles and okay. things like that. So they had the word, maybe not in a book form. <laughs> right. Well, you, you know, you mentioned it in the verse before, the previous chapter, and this is the word which was preached to you. So they received that. So I think he's referring to the word as... Like the, the message, message. yeah, exactly. correct. Long for the message, the pure message. We think of just because it's the yes. only way we have. That's the way we receive right. it. But they had it all <laughs> as well. Yeah. yeah. So is this, um, be, you know, so what? What's the application to different levels of people? You know, is this 
are these the ones that were just new converts that he's referring to? Is that the... No, I don't think so. I think this is for all of us to be like newborn babes. Now, he doesn't mean new converts when he says that. He's just using an illustration of the baby. Okay. Is Hebrews... Is that what you're thinking of? Well, that's, I mean, making that comparison, you know, is is that anything, is that the same? I think he's using a different figure. I right. Think. You know, or, okay. or using the figure in a different way. Right. Not contrasting milk and meat here, but the milk of the word is the whole word, and all of us are to be with the intense desire of a newborn baby. Yeah, so it's completely, you're looking at the other end of the same comparison almost. Be like the newborn babe. <laughs> the other one is looking at, Right, the babe was the the babe was wanting the milk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, and they ought to grow up and need the milk. Right. So So, yeah, yeah, it's a matter. You know, it's it's like so many, uh, you know, comparisons and analogies in the Bible. They're used in different ways. It's like saying, you know, who's the lion in the Bible? Well, sometimes it's Jesus, sometimes it's Satan. That'll give you a double take. But I mean, they both have lion-like characteristics. Is leaven good or bad? Well, the parable of the leaven, like the kingdom of God, is like leaven, it's good. But when you are to cast out the old leaven in First Corinthians 5, it's bad. Well, it's not either good or bad in itself. It can be used to illustrate one or the other. And so the milk of the word can be kind of a bad thing. You're just still wanting baby food when you ought to grow up and eat meat. Or you, it can just refer to the word itself. That's like milk that we just crave like a newborn baby would. Good question. Other questions have come. In the that first verse, the, that list of things to put aside, another way to look at that is like they're all antonyms of sincere. So the whole sincere love, you got to get rid of all of those shadings of insincere, unsincere, not sincere, <laughs> anti-sincere love things. Yes, correct. Sincerely correct. All right, uh, four through ten. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. <coughs> they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also that they were, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, he's uh, really focusing in on the metaphor of the stone, right? How many times can you talk about a stone or a rock in one little passage? Isn't that an especially apt metaphor for someone Jesus nicknamed Rocky? Because what does Peter mean? A rock. Uh, So he's developing that whole rock idea. So, and he's got a lot to say, a lot of things to look at. Coming to him as to a living stone. Everything's living in in First Peter. uh, The living uh, hope and the living God, and and now we've got the the living stone. That's Jesus. 
that we build on, that we rest on, that's solid. But you've been rejected by men. You know, men... You know, it's like men had the idea they were going to build their building. And they had some stones to uh, choose from. And they saw Jesus and they thought, he won't fit in our building. You know, that stone is uh, unfit for what we're doing. Peter's readers could probably relate to that. Many of them had been rejected by men. You know, maybe men who were trying to develop their idea of society and culture and community, and they come across Christians and they're like, ah, this, this, they, these stones won't work. They're no good. Well, does it really matter what men's evaluation of Jesus was? And does it matter what men's evaluation of us is? Also, no. You know, him, this, this living stone was rejected by men, but he's choice and precious in the sight of God. I say God's a better carpenter than men are. And he's creating a more enduring building. And this stone that is Jesus works very well in, G, in God's building. He's choice and precious in the sight of God. How often do men and God look at things differently? Remember in 1 Samuel 16, you know, when they were trying to pick a successor to Saul? And you had, you knew it was going to be one of Jesse's sons. Well, the old, it has to be the oldest. Well, then it has to be the next one. It has to be the next one. It has to be the next one. And it's finally the little boy out there keeping the sheep that nobody even would have given a second thought to. And uh, Samuel just says, God doesn't see like men sees. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. So if God says, Jesus is my stone, then I'd say we better go with God's view of it. Uh, so God has sort of vindicated Jesus as, because he's chosen him, he's precious in his sight, but it's not just him. You also as living stones. So If we come to Christ, we're transformed into stones like he is, living stones. And we're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, what kind of a house do Christians form? A house of God. Yes, there's a word for that. Temple. Yeah. Temple's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, because the temple was where God lived, God dwelt. That's the kind of spiritual house we are. Now, if you think about the idea of being built up as a spiritual house, what do the stones in the house represent? People, Christians. People who've been converted to Christ. So, when you're building a house, is it just made out of one stone? No, it's it's various stones put together. A lot of stones. When we are being the house for God, the temple for God, are we just supposed to be one individual serving the Lord? No, we're supposed to be built together. We're not a jumbled pile of stones. We are joined together to be a place where God dwells. There's again that emphasis on 
the community, on the, on, on the group of Christians working <laughs> together to be a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So, you know, I, I see sometimes Christians who are like, you know, I've decided I'm going to be a pure Christian. I'm not going to contaminate myself by contact with any other Christians. I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to be kind of a lone ranger. That is not the way God designed this. We are not intended to be some loose stone hanging around somewhere. We're to be built together. That's the what God wants. Um, and we've got a role in that. Then, we're holy priests offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. Wow. Well... What kind of spiritual sacrifices do we offer? Animals. Bulls and goats. Right? It's the sacrifices I remember. What kind of sacrifices do we offer to God? You're older than the rest of us. (laughs) Oh, is that what you meant? (laughs) (laughs) Not that I actually remember the era when they did that, of course. I have read the Old Testament, though. (laughs) Well, you said, what do we sacrifice? Yeah, like, what are the sacrifices we offer to God? The Bible says, the New Testament says, what are some of the sacrifices in the New Testament? The fruit of the lips that give praise to his name. Where is that found? You should know that from your singing background. (laughs) Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Yeah, that's right. What else? Our bodies. Yeah. Praise, which is also that passage. Our bodies, what passage is that? Romans 12. Romans 12, exactly. Our, so our lives. Prayer. Prayers. Um, you know, um, Paul in Philippians 4 talked about even the contribution the Philippians made to him as being a sacrifice to God. There's a lot of different things we offer to God that the New Testament talks about. It's not animals anymore. But, but we do have our sacrifices. But now for those sacrifices to be acceptable to God... How do they have to be offered? Verse 5? Right. Through Christ. Through Christ, yeah. You know, we can't just offer these <coughs> sacrifices, you know, in some pagan religion or something. <laughs> it has to be offered through the Lord, through Jesus. Thoughts and comments on 4 and 5? <coughs> Is there a verse that says that good works are um, Well, that may be kind of a combination. Okay. Look at Hebrews 13. You've got that. Uh, we're in um, 15 and 16. Um, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So that that's Hebrews 13, 16. So that's certainly uh, uh, the idea. The pleasing aroma, though, may come from uh, Philippians 42, where it's talking about the, the contribution the Philippians made. That's Philippians 4.18. Maybe some other passage. That pleasing aroma is found another time or two, but in this case, we wear at the moment. So, okay. In a physical, geological sense, <laughs> what is a living stone? Uh, I don't think you can get a living stone out of a physical, geological sense. (laughs) I think the point is we're not talking about physical, geological stones. We're living stones in contrast with those dead stones they build a building with. Okay. I was just, I was trying to think of, uh, I remember a passage in a fiction book where it talked about that this arch was made, was 
living stone in the sense that it hadn't been cut or masoned or anything, and so it was still part of the whole structure of the rock that had grown and eroded and all, and it, so... But, it's like more of a philosopher's concept than a geological concept, yeah, but so, I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't, I wasn't sure if there was an actual, like, not that I know difference about. between... There may be. Good, solid stone and not so good, you know. I'm looking it up. How <laughs> <laughs> you go about looking up living stone? Well, there's a... The magic box. Oh. What's that? Living stone Google what? geology. Google. Oh. I think hey. it's a television. Hmm. It's a South African plant that resembles a pebble. <laughs> okay. It's a plant. Bro. I have an idea that may not be productive in our mouth. Uh, that may not work. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, though. So look, he cites uh, Isaiah 28 here, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, where it says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So, Jesus is like our foundation. And if we've got Jesus as the foundation of our faith, we will not have ultimate disappointment. We won't be embarrassed. We won't fall short. Uh, Because the stone, Jesus, will never fail us. He is an absolutely, totally reliable foundation for us. But this precious value, then, is for those of you who believe, for you who believe. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, Jesus is the key to our not being disappointed. He's a key to our destiny, really. And either we're going to build on him and be blessed, or we will stumble over him and fall. You know, one way or another, we're going to have an encounter with this stone. Is it going to be a positive one or a negative one? You can't ignore it. You know, you will either uh, build on him or you'll fall over him. Uh, because that's the way God made it. He made it to where everybody's going to deal with Jesus one way or the other. You know, there's no there's no middle ground on Jesus. Uh, he says that a stone, stone stumbling and a rock of offense in verse 8 for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. God foreordained that the punishment for disobedience would be stumbling. You know, God is going to punish those who stumble over Jesus. Those who refuse to believe and acknowledge Jesus. So, he's the stone... What's our attitude toward the stone? That's going to determine everything in our life. Thoughts and comments through verse 8. There's a recurring theme about obedience mm-hmm. through here, like 122, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify yourselves. And then Harry's talking about they stumble because they were disobedient to the word. Yes, good point. Yeah, that is a theme here. Which seems to slap in the face of predestination and and faithfully, um, which is this understanding of the term faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We're, uh, you know, we determine what our destiny will be by our reaction to Jesus. The disobedient are destined for. That's exactly right. We're not destined to be disobedient. 
but the destiny of the disobedient is to stumble and fall. Yes, correct. This brought to mind just a little bit. I'm tired, so it, anyways. Um, Book of Daniel and the picture of the rock coming in. Oh, sure. And how it grows and fills the entire world and, you know, something you can't ignore. So. Mm-hmm. Lots of stone rock uh, imagery throughout the Bible. That's right, <laughs> absolutely. Because you got that foundation that's mm-hmm. solid. Yeah. Song's gonna be stuck in my head for the rest of the night. I think. Oh, great song. <laughs> you don't know it. We'll teach you. Yeah, we're gonna teach you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, you want? What's it called? It's called the Wise Man or something. I think I heard it on the rock. Yeah. Can we play it right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. the kids could sing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, these are the terms that I think you would have legitimately used for the nation of Israel, but now they apply to God's people, God's church. That is not just one nation of people, but extraterrestrials from every nation, so to speak. And we are God's specially chosen people. You know, we we are his priests, we are his holy nation, we're his special treasure. You know, think about uh, a boy who collects knives or gadgets of some sort, and they become his special, precious possession. You know, uh, you can take a 10 or 14 year old who collects something like that, and and man, he, he just knows everything about it, and he's so attached to it, and it's, you know, that, that's how we are to the Lord. He loves us that much. He cherishes us like that. We're his special people. That's really, uh, really amazing that he would, you know, treat us with such honor and closeness. And we've got a mission. What's the mission in verse 9? Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. To glorify God. You know, we we declare the excellencies of God. We are chosen for the purpose of proclaiming God's mighty acts. We're not chosen just for our own benefit, our own enjoyment. But we've got a purpose to proclaim the Lord uh, to those uh, in darkness. You know, uh, he's the one who called us out of darkness into light, and we need to proclaim him to those who are in darkness. And, and glorify him. Because look at what happened. We were not a people, now we are the people of God. You didn't have mercy, now you have. Um, you know, so we've been greatly blessed by our relationship with Jesus. It's made something out of us. And we need to be declaring to everybody around us the message of the Lord. I think that's something we've fallen way short of. You know, we, we really need to be saying more about Jesus and his greatness, and his marvelousness. Thoughts and comments? Just the verse 10 coming from Hosea, and the children, Loami and Lobrahami, and, and all that. Yes. That's a nice, that's a nice echo. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, empty space. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And, uh, other thoughts? Questions? So 
a few times through here comparing us to being the priests, you know, and offering a royal priesthood and offering these sacrifices and everything. That reminded me of a question I had reading Jeremiah, actually. But it was saying how David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer bird offerings, spring green offerings, or bird sacrifices. Do you think that messianic? Because clearly, like it sounded very literal back in Jeremiah, but it makes a little more sense if it yes. applies to us. So you have to think when you're looking at the prophecies, how it would sound for God to say, and Jesus will be their prince, and Christians will serve God directly. Does that mean anything? So he describes the future in terms they can relate to. Think about describing an airplane to people 500 years ago. You'd have said, and in a few hundred years, they're going to make an airplane. Uh, an air what? It wouldn't mean anything. You know, what's an airplane? You know, so you'd say, you know, they're going to put a motor on birds, and they're going to carry passengers, or something. You know, you've got to have to do something that they can relate to. You know, so he doesn't say in Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Jesus will be their king. He says David. Because he's another David. And he doesn't say... Christians are going to... Offer up their bodies. Yeah, to look sacrifice. He says, the house of Levi will never lack a man to uh, serve his priest. Yeah. Or even maybe think about Jesus as the perpetual priest. But again, saying Jesus is going to be the priest forever. What's a Jesus? <laughs> then it would get really confusing because... You couldn't have a priest of the tribe of Judah because he's there and then a Levi and then he's like <gasps> Yeah, yeah. So but that is a I'm common so thing with the Old Testament prophecies that confuses people. You be They're expecting priest. it to be literal when it's sure really it does. That perhaps is in particular. They will offer bird offerings and grain offerings and, you know, that kind of thing. And it gave one man, like okay. his offspring, didn't it? I don't last remember that, but it's just the house of Levi. I don't know. So that one kind of threw me off. But. Yeah. But fulfilled both in Christ. I like that. Yeah. That's helpful. Because he is priest and king. I was looking at 33. <laughs> yeah. 18. Yes, uh-huh. And uh, so think about, um, you're talking about, well, it's so literal. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. That's uh, the beginning of Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-four. That sounds very literal. And my servant David will be king over them. And he said earlier in the book, in 34, uh, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he's going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So you've got a lot of that where he's describing the future in concrete terms based upon what they related to. So, I mean, there are people, not very many, but there are people who argue that David will be brought back and David will actually be the king <coughs> in the millennial kingdom. And there are those who argue that we will go back to animal sacrifices in a literal physical temple with Levitical priests. 
There are people who argue that. All the verses. <laughs> <laughs> Those are shadows of things to come. But yeah. he, and here's, I think, here's, I think the, the flaw in all of that. People think you have to interpret prophecy literally. Think about a couple things. I, I remember there's a pretty decent premillennial commentary on the book of Revelation, two-volume commentary. And I read it, and there's a lot of insights into it, but it's, the whole point is wrong. But I kid you not, it was nearly every other page he would say, and prophecy must be understood literally. And, and on the opposite page, he'd be taking it figuratively. <laughs> so like, but, but we say we take it literally. Nobody takes everything in the Bible literally. Not even close. We just all close our eyes to what we're doing. Now, brethren, I, I grew up hearing you should always take a passage literally unless the context or a contradiction or something forces you to take a figure. That is also not true. It is not true that we should give a preference toward literal. We should take the passage in the way it's intended. Now that obviously then <laughs> that depends on us then reading it to understand that. But I think to start with a bias, literal is the default or figurative is the default. I don't think we have any defaults. I think we go into it with an open mind, trying to understand it in the way it's written. So I don't think that we should say, well, you know, you just can't take that one literally, but take all of them literal you can. No, take them the way they're written. Reminds me of the necessary inference and the approved epistolic example, oh, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. we they tout but don't end up following it. <laughs> we, we have some slogans sometimes that maybe they're oversimplifications or wrong concepts. I mean, I think we've been somewhat influenced by this idea that everything ought to be literal and the spiritualized thing ought to be the exception. I don't think there's any particular reason for that. There is a lot, a lot of figurative everything in the Bible, or spiritual if you want to use that term. Uh, so, I'm cool with that. Um, and, and, you know, it will help in dealing with people who teach other things to point out things like David. Because most of them don't say it's the real David. If you get one that does, they, they just really get kooky on you. <laughs> because then everything has to be go back and be reestablished. And it's like, and the finality of Jesus' sacrifice and all that. We're going to go back to the old inferior system. Well, what, what would cause us to do that? I mean, the Hebrews is very helpful in that. So, anyhow. Other thoughts? All right, look at 11 and 12. 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, so he urges us as aliens and strangers again. See yourself as a foreigner, as a pilgrim. There's a tendency to settle down and try to make ourselves home, at home, here in uh, Babylon. 
but we're not, we don't belong here. So see ourselves as extraterrestrials and abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know, we don't always see these fleshly desires as enemies. They're bombarding us and sometimes we're like, oh, we want these. But they're alien to us. They're the, they're the enemy trying to attack us and seduce us. And they never satisfy us. They wage war against the soul. By the way, wage war against the soul means they wage war against us. Our, not, not, our, simply our, uh, disembodied spirit. Um, and they never satisfy us. These, these lusts are useless for us. Uh, and so we need to really embrace this pilgrim extraterrestrial concept and not involve ourselves in these carnal fleshly desires that, that are against us. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, here using Gentiles as we have Jew-Gentile Christians. Christ, Gentiles are the non-Christians, really, almost almost including the Jews. Really, and now it's almost uh, Christians and Gentiles. Uh, so then the thing which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the whole idea is they're speaking badly about us, but how is the best way to answer these criticisms and accusations made against the Christians? Their behavior being right. Some campaign of self-defense isn't going to do the job. Um, but but you live right. <laughs> you know, you, you behave in the way you should. You do the good deeds. People are going to eventually come to respect you. And uh, that's what we want. We want people seeing our life and our character to come to glorify God in the day of judgment. There's a lot of evangelistic value in living a good life. And uh, so they'll see you and they'll repent and they'll be, be blessed uh, when they come before God in judgment. Thoughts and comments on all that. So actions speak louder than lies or defenses. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, and and people are going to judge what we say based upon what we do. They're going to be watching. And when I sin, especially in front of other people, then I am condemning other people. To, I mean, leading them to be condemned. Yeah, you being a bad example and losing credibility when you're trying to glorify the Lord. In the day of visitation? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. in the day when the Lord comes back. That's what I thought. Comes, comes to visit us. So at some point, whether whether they want to or not, they're going to eventually have to admit that, yes, you were doing the right things, the godly things, and not actually lying and slandering yes. and being deceitful. And, yeah, I, and maybe the idea is they'll be converted so that in the day of visitation they'll be glorified. I think I think that's the goal. It's not just that it's the last day they'll they'll have to humble themselves by force, but they will have been converted and they'll they'll be among those who are glorifying God that, in that day. Is judgment implied in visitation? I suspect so. When he, he comes to visit again, it's to be judges. All right, um, that's what I got to say for tonight. So we can.